brought the flowers today, but well done. Just enjoyed listening to the song and looking at the beauty of God's creation. Our text today is primarily coming from 1 Kings chapter 5, or sorry, 2 Kings chapter 5, and that's on page 311 in your, if you're going to use the blue pew Bible. But the reason we're going to be there is because Jesus mentions this story in Luke chapter 4. So if you'd find that as well. And I just want you to notice in Luke chapter 4, Jesus has gone to um, his hometown to preach. And this is the first thing uh, Luke records for us after Jesus's temptation in the wilderness and he has a very rocky time there which we'll talk about next week but in verse 27 he says and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian so I thought it would be helpful just to say well let's look at Naaman the Syrian so somehow he made it into Jesus's mind uh, and I would like to make it into Jesus's mind. <laughs> so I want to know what he did. He was used as an example, a good example. And so we're going to be looking at that story of Naaman, which comes from Second Kings chapter 5. And let's stand together as we read God's word. Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and high favor. Because of him, the Lord had given victory to Syria And he was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But then Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, and he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel." So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to Naaman saying, Go and wash yourself in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and he went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure my leper. Are not Abama and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? 
Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, and he and all his company, and he came and stood before him and said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. You may be seated, and let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. I love this story, and I want you to love it too. It's such a great passage, and I loved when, it, when Jesus brought it up in, in Luke 5 or Luke 4 so we could talk about it today. Because we're not familiar with this time period, uh, we don't really understand the, the political and religious tension between Syria and Israel at this time. These, these are mortal enemies that live geographically one border away. So they, they have a bordering town or a bordering uh, country line, and there's an enormous amount of hostility that's taking place at this time. And because of that, it's hard for us to appreciate how astonishing it was that Naaman actually made the request for a Syrian general, one who had attacked Israel many times, to come and make a request of the king of Israel was unusual. And then it's also unusual that he actually received what he got. I mean, you would think, hey, here's a commander coming down looking for some kind of healing. He's going to get healed and go back and then come back and attack us. So it's an unusual request, and it's unusual that he actually receives help from God. Israel and Syria are bitter enemies, and at this particular moment, Syria has the upper hand, and the reason they have the upper hand is mostly because of Naaman. He's such a great general, he's overpowering the work, the work and the army of Israel. So it's unusual here when the king of Israel, when uh, he comes and he comes to the king of Israel requesting help, and you can tell it's unusual because of the king's response. Did you notice that? He tore his clothes. Oh my gosh, this, this guy's not actually for help. He's really just trying to create a reason to fight again. So I'm coming down, I have this false story about I need help, you don't provide help, and then that's a reason for us to go back to battle and us to come back and sort of pillage your country. That's what the king thinks. And so he's, it's also surprising that he receives help because we read in verse 18 
that Naaman is a worshiper of a god in Syria called Ramon, R-I-M-M-O-N. It's the sun god. So let's just take for a moment. You've got a bitter enemy who serves another god. And he comes to you, who you serve, the king of kings. And he worships another god. And he asks for your help. Who's who's the most unlikely person you know that if they came through the doors of the church, you'd be like, I cannot believe they came. That's Naaman. I can't believe this guy's coming asking us for help. Of, of all the things he's already done, of the way he said he believes and, and, and all that stuff, I just can't believe he's actually here. Well, Naaman is actually here. And when we look at this story, we're going to look at it in three different ways. He has two bar- main barriers to belief. Naaman has two main barriers to belief, and they're barriers that we all share. We're going to look at that. Then our role in other people's belief. So Naaman comes down, he's got his own barriers, and then we play a role in helping this person believe. And then finally, and very briefly, we'll just notice the way God works. So first of all, what are two barriers to belief? And I would say those two barriers are pretty easy to see. He has a a false narrative. That's a common barrier to belief. We believed a lie. We've believed a different story. We've listened to another voice. We've talked about this last week when we talked about how Satan works, how the devil works. He plants some sort of deceptive idea that you latch on to, and you latch on to it because you have some distorted or disordered desires. You have some hungers, physical hungers, emotional hungers, uh, mental hungers, financial hungers, and they easily get manipulated, and you think, well, if I can just hold on to this, then I can be satisfied. You've all probably seen the little bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins. You've seen that? And I think, well, the big problem is you die. It's not the toys. I mean, so I never quite understood it, but nonetheless... It's funny. I mean, I'm sure the person who means it means it to be funny, but it's a, it's a, it's a narrative. And you, you're familiar with the narrative that if you accumulate enough stuff, then you'll be satisfied. Satisfaction is just one purchase away. All of us are, are susceptible to that false narrative. I'm unhappy, and if I just have one more thing, then I'm going, going to be happy. And notice in chapter, I mean, in chapter 5, verse 1, uh, the writer, he piles up achievements from, Na- from, uh, from Naaman, like these achievements would be great. And Naaman has this great resume. He's a commander of a powerful army. He's known as a great man. He has high favor amongst the king. He's a mighty man of valor. He's like a superhero kind of person. And in verse 5, we read that his military leadership has produced enormous amount of wealth. So everybody wants Naaman's resume. He's got all the things that if you say, if I could just purchase this, if I could just have that, then I would be happy. And Naaman must be happy because he's got everything anybody would want, except he has one little problem. It's at the very end of his resume 
It's probably in tiny little script. In Hebrews, in, in the Hebrew, it's just one word. He was a great man with his master, high in favor. The Lord had given him victory. He was a mighty man of, a man of valor, comma, leper. He's got this one spot, this one little problem tacked on. In all likelihood, Naaman just discovered this leprosy. He was able to hide it. People weren't aware of it. He's got enough metals and money to hide the spot on his soul that nobody can see. But he knows the spot's going to grow. It's actually going to peel away success after success until he has nothing left. And he knows the little spot that's hidden, eventually people are going to see the spot. I appreciate Tim Keller's view here. Naaman's leprosy represents the reality that success can't deliver the satisfaction we're looking for. Naaman's leprosy represents the reality that success, it just can't deliver because there's always some other spot on our soul that success just can't seem to cover. No matter how much you pile it on, it, it's like there. It's like a, a leper's spot. Most of you are familiar with the pop legend Madonna. Uh, she was interviewed in a magazine perfectly named for her, Vanity Fair. And uh, it's amazing to me because she's, I think she's in her 60s, so... I'm 58, so Madonna has been, you know, in the pop scene all of my life, and she's still in that scene today. And here's what she says. I have an iron will, and all of my will all has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think, I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my, my drive in life is from this hor horrible fear of being mediocre. I just wonder, I appreciated her transparency. wonder how many share that, some fear that, like, I'm going to be discovered as mediocre. And so you, you, you attach yourself to something, you double down on your efforts, try, trying to make sure people think you're special, you're somebody. It's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. The struggle never ends. What a spin cycle. What a terrible spin cycle. No matter how much success she gets, she realizes it's not ever going to be enough. No matter how popular, no, how many, no matter how many songs she sings and no matter how many albums she sells, she, she's always going to have this, soul, this spot in her soul like a leper spot that says, it's not, if somebody discovers me, they're going to find out really I'm mediocre. And she's in this spin cycle. She's got a false narrative. Her driving force is not joy, but it's fear. And these false narratives are cruel masters because you never arrive. You never get quite good enough. They make you think just one more thing and you're there, but as soon as you reach it, you're not there. 
I mentioned this some time ago. I read an article on plastic or cosmetic surgery and how it had had more recently had a dramatic increase. And that wasn't what was surprising about the article. The, what was surprising about the article was the age group. And I was thinking, this isn't going to be a shocker. You know, this is going to be 40 to 50, you know, something like that. I just got back from my 40th high school reunion. And I just was like, wow. Good look for 58, you know. I had some help there. I mean, I didn't say that out loud or anything, but just... Of course, I don't want to know what they were saying about me, but that's another story. The largest demographic were 20s. And the reason, you know the reason why? I don't look good in selfies. What a, what a terrible spin cycle. In your 20s, you, whether you like it or not, that's probably as good as you're ever going to look. <laughs> I, hate to, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. But it doesn't get better for most, most of us. And here this person is, is thinking, just one more something. I mean, you, don't you feel that? Even if that's not your thing, I wonder what your thing is. All of us have that, we could fill in the blank. Paul, it's, it's not cosmetic surgery, it's not money, but it's, if I just could have this, then I just know I would be happy. And that's a false narrative. That's a lie that we buy into that keeps us in, in a sort of depressed state because we, we never get out of it. We're all susceptible for, to false narratives. Naaman is susceptible to false narratives, except he has leprosy. And I don't want to say this lightly, but it was a good thing Naaman had leprosy. It's possible God delivers a spot in your life And again, I'm not saying this lightly at all, but it's a way for you to recognize what you're chasing is never going to be happy, make you happy. And God delivers Nathan victories, says, and delivers leprosy to help Nathan be open to something that he wouldn't have been open to before. And that's probably a lot of our testimonies, is it not? You were chasing some some sort of dream you thought you could achieve on your own, just one more toy and you would win. But some kind of pain entered in. Something shattered your dream. And it actually opened you up to believing something that previously there was a barrier. So the first barrier to belief is false narratives. And Naaman believed all the press until the one spot showed up. And then he has to move away from the false narrative. And the second problem for for Naaman is poisonous pride. So easy to see in the text. It was good that Naaman was willing to go look for help. But I just want you to notice this is such a great spot in the uh, story. How he tries to import his old ways to deal with this problem. He tries to use external means to fix an internal problem, and it's so easy for us to do as well. He, he imports self-sufficiency and success in his search for salvation. Let's look at verse 5 together. 
And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of kings. So first of all, Naaman has high connections. He's got a great network. He's got people who can rescue him from his problem. And the first thing he does is he goes to the king and he says, I know you know the other king and you can help me out. So he's using his network to solve his problem. And secondly, so he went, the the second part of verse 5, and he takes with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothes. See, I have wealth, so when I arrive to the king of Israel and the prophet, they're going to be impressed. And when they get impressed with me, they're going to want to help me. That's the way Naaman rolls. If I'm impressive to other people, they solve my problems. And I love, this is my favorite part of this whole story, how Elisha responds. He doesn't even get out of his chair. Do you notice that? I'm just trying to imagine. I'd love to watch this scene. Naaman rolls up. Chariots. He's got his uh, treasure chest open because he wants to be impressive. Gold, silver spilling out. He's got some kind of suit rack on the back of his chariot with ten suits on it. And he rolls right up to the door. Elisha goes, yeah, I'm not getting up for him. A servant, can you go tell him what to do? And a servant appears. It's not even Elisha. He says, hey, you just need to go down to this muddy river and bathe in it. I love that. I love that. It's a complete reorientation for Naaman. He's completely in a, a, a place he's never been before. This is not how Naaman operates. This is not how things get done in Naaman's world. What, gets, what works in Naaman's world is impressiveness, wealth, power. And here he's being confronted by Elisha and really God himself saying, hey, you know what, I'm not in any way impressed or moved by any of that. None of that, none of your power, none of your beauty, none of your wealth, it means nothing here. I just wonder if we believe that because we're in a society that the, the, the stream of information goes completely against that. It's hard for me to even believe. None, none of my talents, none of my power, none of my success, no, no, nothing. That's not how God operates. Naaman's uh, upset. Doesn't this good, no good prophet understand who he's dealing with? Doesn't he understand how my cure is supposed to happen? I've come in an impressive fashion. And I love what he thinks he's supposed to do. You notice how he's, he's uh, telling the story? What he's supposed to do is he's supposed to come out and wave his hands around. He's supposed to shout up to his God... And then everyone would be awed by Elisha and then impressed with me. That's not how it rolls for Naaman. Anyone can go down to a muddy river. I need something impressive because of who I am. I'm a power broker. I want to deal with a God who deals with power brokers. I don't want to deal with a God who can reach every person. I don't want to deal with a God who reaches impressive people. That's Naaman. 
Naaman's thinking has been completely warped by the way of the world. And the little servant, I'd, I'd love to meet him one day. I mean, what did he think when he opened the door? Me? I'm supposed to go meet the general? I mean, you realize he's killed people? I mean, I don't know what he was thinking, but this is the kind of thing I'd be thinking. Elisha, you're the prophet, but, you know, I mean, just anything to not be me. Uh, general, uh, nobody here is impressed with your resume. Nobody cares about your medals or money. That's not the way we work. Instead, you have to humble yourself. And in front of all this entourage, you've got to go wash yourself seven times in a muddy river. One more point here, verse 13. Naaman explodes and runs away. And then in verse 13, uh, the NIV translates it this way. But his servants come near and say to Naaman, my father... It is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do? Will you not do it? And the NIV's better. Naaman's servants went to him and said, "My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, you would have done it." See, you came prepared to do something great. If we set up the uh, America Ninja obstacle course, you were ready. You were you were going to do it. If, if it was a certain amount of money you were ready to give, you were ready to do anything great, the one thing you weren't ready to do was something humble. And he, you were ready to do something great, so can't you do this small thing? And you know what the thing is? A lot of people can't do the small thing. That's not the God they believe in. It's a great barrier to belief. Religion is about what you do. Christianity is about what's been done. Naaman's learning this. It's, not, it's about a great accomplishment by God. It's not about a great accomplishment by you. And so Naaman has to go down to this river and wash away his poisonous pride. And he does. Our role in Naaman's belief. It's highlighted here three different times with the word servant. You see it in the passage several times. First, a servant of Elisha comes and meets Naaman. So his role is to communicate truth, to say, hey, this is what the word of God says. I'm just a communicator. I'm just the, the hose bringing the truth to you. I'm not the truth. I'm not the way. I'm not the life. I'm just bringing this to you. This is the, our role. This is specifically my role here on Sunday morning is just to be a vehicle of truth. And we're going to see Jesus talking about that or um, exaggerating that in a good way next week. A servant just delivers the truth. Second, a servant comes to Nathan in verse 13 and tries to convince him this is really the best way. So sometimes your delivery system and sometimes the delivery system is, has delivered but the person's still skeptical, and your role is to come in and say, what questions do you have? Why, why can't you see it? I'm going to walk alongside you and try to convince you that your false narrative isn't going to work. Your leprosy is going to take away your, take on, take away your life. Can you, are you willing to go this way? This is another role that we have. But the most profound role 
And really the most profound person, I think, in this text is somebody who doesn't have a name. Verse 2. Now the Syrians on one of their raids, so they come down because they're in the north. They come down to Israel. They take goods back. One of the goods, a little girl. She serves as a slave in Naaman's house. You may have forgotten about her already in the story if I hadn't reminded you of her. Elisha, Naaman. She's just a, it's just a little name in the very beginning that you could just run right by, but yet she's like the key to the whole story. And try to imagine just for a moment that without her, Naaman would have never been healed. I try to imagine her position. People have come in and take over her town, maybe killed her parents, and said, hey, you're good enough to be a slave. That's happening today in Afghanistan. They're coming into homes, Christian and non, and killing the men and taking the women, either for wives or for servants. Now imagine you're taken away and you're a Christian woman or girl. One day she overhears that Naaman has leprosy. Now what's your reaction? Good. I mean, I hate to say it, but isn't I mean, am I thinking what you were thinking? Justice. I hope it's long and slow. I mean, this isn't, this, this isn't the way you should be thinking in case you're confused. But this is, a, isn't this just your first reaction to, to say, oh, this, somehow God is coming in with justice, this is payback? Again, Tim Keller says this, think of it. Naaman was, in, was now in her hands. She knew what could save him. And by withholding, she could make him suffer. I wonder if you've ever done that. You've withheld something, hoping the other person would suffer. I won't ask for a raise of hands. She could make him pay for his sins. She could make him bear the cost for what he has done, yet she does not. This unsung heroine of the story refuses, listen, she refuses to relieve her suffering by making him pay. That's a critical statement. She refuses to relieve her suffering by making him pay. That's the definition of forgiveness. When I'm willing to forgive you or you're willing to forgive me or one another, what you're saying is I'm not going to make you pay. I'm not going to make you suffer as a way of saying you deserve that. I'm going to take that suffering on myself. That's what's so hard about forgiving Because I really want somebody else to pay. And forgiveness is saying, I'm not going to do that. She forgave him and became the vehicle for his healing. Forgiveness, he closes this way, forgiveness always requires a suffering servant. Who's the shadow of Christ in this story? This little girl. She's a beautiful shadow of Jesus. 
she understands something has been, she's been wronged. But she's not going to give back what they deserve. She's going to give back healing. That's Jesus. I'd love to meet this little girl one day. She's not noticed. She's forgotten by the end of the story. But she lays down her life so that other people might find the Lord. That's our role. I was listening to a leadership podcast said this as a Christian leader you allow death and pain to come into your life in order to release life and blessing into the community as a Christian leader you allow suffering to come into your life in order to release life and blessing to other people finally very quickly the way God works Verses 14 and 15. So he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. Notice and underline, according to the word of the man of God. That's the key phrase that Jesus is going to pick up on in Luke 4. He operated according to the word. It's exactly what uh, Joseph prayed about today. We're going to hear and do. And his flesh was restored. It's like he was a new creation and then he returned to Elisha saying, this, this truly is the man, this truly is the Lord. So Naaman actually has to do something harder than performing a great act. He must humbly admit that he can do nothing. That's how God operates. He operates with people who believe they can do nothing. Then you're in a great spot. John Gerstner, if you want to become a Christian, all you need is nothing. And very few people have that. Naaman actually humbly trusts God's word. And 1,000 years later, he's remembered by Jesus. It takes him a while. It's not the first time. You know, it takes him some rage and... Take some coercion, take some humility, but in the end, he says, I have nothing, I'm going to totally trust God's word, and a thousand years later, Jesus says, let's look at Naaman. Obvious points of application here. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like Naaman. You are the unlikely candidate to be here this morning. And I just wonder, what barriers do you have to belief? I mean, you're sitting here because your friend is here, your parents are here, whatever, but really, you're, you're pretty skeptical. I've, I've been in that place, but what, what are your barriers of belief? Could you identify what those are? Is it possible you've bought into a false narrative? Is it possible that pride is causing you to not look more deeply at Jesus? Maybe you're sitting here and you've been seeking God, but really you've imported your old worldly ways. You're really here because you need the checkbox. I mean, you're going to put your money in the box. You're going to sign up and come to the fall festival. You're, you're checking the box so that when you get to heaven, you can pull out your resume. 
That's not, that's not nothing. And you realize, hey, maybe my whole life I've just been religious. I've not actually ever been a Christian. Finally, if you're a follower of Jesus, and I don't want you to answer too quickly in your mind, are you willing to be this little girl? Are you willing to take on suffering? God assigned this little girl this assignment. This didn't happen. In order for somebody else to flourish, are you willing to be wounded? I love this story. Helps clarify some things for ourselves about ourselves and Jesus, the world that we live in. I hope in some portion it's helped clarify something for you. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word. It's a it's a sword. It's a power that cuts down into the deepest parts of false narratives and beliefs, pride fear, love of comfort or things. I pray especially for the people here who are following you that they would take seriously this little girl's example, the suffering she endured for one man's salvation that got talked about by Jesus a thousand years later, well after she's died and nobody knows who she is. For many of us, that's an assignment. May we hear and do what you're asking us to do. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.